John Wayne Gacy. Imagine, if you would, learning your close friend, your neighbor, a jovial, somewhat pudgy man that fit the typical uncle figure, was secretly one of America's most infamous evil killers of all time. Imagine, if you will, standing outside in your yard as you watch hosts of police and coroner teams carrying out multiple body bags with decaying corpses, 26 corpses to count, each being removed, found beneath your neighbor's floors in a shallow grave of his crawl space. Perhaps you even hired dislikable man to come to your child's birthday party, where he donned the makeup of a clown and did magic tricks to entertain the children. In a subdivision of Chicago, Illinois, in a typical American housing district, his name was John Wayne Gacy. Join us tonight, if you dare, as we explore this vicious serial killer on another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller, conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Often called the Killer Clown, John Wayne Gacy is known to have murdered at least 33 young male victims. Uh, he was considered by many to be a friendly man who loved to entertain children. Like we said in the intro, he would dress up as a clown and, and, and you know, he would attend children's birthday parties he, he and perform. He went to hospitals, uh, you know, and helped entertain the children and cancer wards. And behind the makeup, little did anyone know was, was, was quite the monster. Many of his victims were eventually found buried under his house, while others were recovered from the nearby Des Plaines River. You know, how, how, does, how does something like this get started? Well, John Wayne Gacy was born on March 17, 1942, in Chicago, Illinois. And Gacy and his siblings, they, they grew up with an alcoholic father. He was, I believe, the second of the three children. Yeah. Yeah, he, would, uh, he was known to beat his children with a, razor, with a razor strap if he perceived that they had misbehaved. Uh, as a matter of fact, one of Gacy's earliest memories that he could recall was of his father beating him with a leather belt for accidentally rearranging the components of a car engine his father had assembled. Uh, his, his father would physically assault Gacy more than his siblings and would physically attack his mother as well. She would try to pr protect John from his father, uh, but this would only cause his father to call him sissy and mama's boy and say that he would probably grow up queer. Seemed uh, to be a lot of that, calling him stupid, feminine, and yeah. Uh, despite all this, Gacy still grew up loving his father, um, but he saw himself as never being good enough for the man, and that was why he abused him the way he did. Uh, another incident in 1949, Gacy's father was informed that his son and another boy had been caught fondling a young girl. Uh, Gacy's father whipped him with a razor strap as punishment. Uh, that same year, Gacy was molested by a family friend in the, in the friend's truck. Uh, this friend was, uh, was male. Uh, and Gacy never told his father, believing that his father would blame him for it. Because again, you know, nothing get, nothing John did was good enough for his father. Gacy's sister Karen said that the siblings had to learn to be tough when they were growing up. They had to toughen up, and they'd toughen up quick. That's because of who their father was. And said that, uh, you know, Gacy would not allow himself to cry at, at these things. So 
you know, when you when you look at the the upbringing, the abusive father, I think we talked about with like not all up. Ed, nobody to talk to. Yeah, with Ed Gein and his mother and things like that. I mean, these childhood traumas kind of push people in a certain direction. Uh, he was also alienated from his schoolmates. Uh, he was unable to to play with the other children like he would have liked to due to a heart condition that he'd been born with, which his father said was just laziness. Yeah, it was another one of his failings. Um, I believe he had a lot of health issues, ended up in the hospital for a while, and, and his father said, you know, oh, you're just doing it for the attention. So, uh, again, nothing he was doing, according to his father, was good enough. Everything was, was just him being lazy, him trying to get attention, him trying to, to, to get out of things. Now, I did find, um, I think he was about 11 years old, and he was uh, playing out on the playground. And at that time, it was typical, the uh, the swings were often no more than chains and a, a big block of wood, basically, that you would set on. And he was uh, somehow had an accident. He was clipped by the chain uh, when the swing broke, and it actually knocked him out. Uh, that seemed to cause him kind of a, some type of a permanent damage to his head, which often led to him having blackouts and dizzy spells for the rest of his life. Yeah. Yeah, and so his early life was pretty rough. It was somewhere in his school years where he started to realize he was attracted to men. And that led to some internal strife, obviously in, in society in, in the, the, the forties and fifties, you know, that was, that was very unacceptable, not accepted. And with a father like his, obviously he wasn't going to be able to find any acceptance there. So that, that kind of pushed him in a, in that direction. Um, but he started to get involved in politics about the age of 18. I did find a childhood friend they interviewed. His name was Barry uh, Busholi, I believe is how you pronounce his name. He remembers John oftentimes spending the night with him, said if, uh, with John, if he was even two minutes late getting home, uh, his father would meet him at the door and literally lock the door in his face and he would get no food, no supper, uh, and he would be locked out of his own home just for being a couple minutes late. Obviously, then John would end up spending the night over at, at uh, Barry's house, which uh, as Barry thought about it more, he said maybe was more intentional to get a, a, you know, a small break away from the family that he was basically being tortured at. Uh, he also recalls that uh, often uh, John would come in with physical bruises, black eyes uh, that he would often kind of sh show up at school with. Allegedly, John's father would pound the kitchen table across from him while he talked down, uh, you know, mentally abusing him uh, to the point where it was not uncommon for him to punch his son directly in the face. Uh, there was one time, I believe, uh, he, he had broken his nose dislocated a jaw. Uh, this was a harsh, harsh family environment, especially with his father. And uh, this made John always doubt himself, kind of as Bill was saying. He always attempted to try to satisfy his father, but as you said there, it just wasn't, wasn't in the cards. It wasn't going to be nothing good enough. Now, we're, we're painting him pretty sympathetic. Let's not forget what eventually happens. We're not trying to say that, you know, victim mentality gives no you the right to, to do, do this. what he did. But, you know, we were he trying did have to, a rough upbringing. You're trying to kind of, and it's a, a dark funneling tunnel, but to put yourself in the shoes, so to speak, of a serial killer of what got them there. So Gacy became involved in politics about the age of 18. He worked as a precinct captain for the Democratic Party in his neighborhood. And, and he himself believes that he got into politics as an attempt to gain acceptance from others that he would never get from his father. Shortly thereafter, he, he left for Vegas after an altercation with his father. I believe his father had bought him a car, but his father strictly controlled Gacy's use of the car. 
So he would take the keys from him as a punishment. And, you know, obviously at 18, he's working. He needs the vehicle to get around. He's involved in, you know, politics. So he needs to, you know, he, he's got to, you know, go places, be, yeah. be places. Got appointments to keep. Uh, when John Wayne Gacy made a copy of the keys, his father found out. So he just took the distributor cap. So one way or the other, I'm going to control, you know, where you have this car. When he finally got the distributor cap back, he just loaded up the car and he took off for Las Vegas. There he found work with an ambulance service before eventually switching over to being an attendant at Palm Mortuary. I thought you were going to say porn mortuary, and that, that's yeah, a totally no. different thing. While working there, he, he confessed later on that he once climbed into a coffin with a deceased male teen where he embraced and caressed the body before experiencing what he called a sense of shock. Creepy mode 10.5. Yeah. So after that experience, he contacted his mother, and, and he was unsure of himself. He was he was left you know shaken by the experience, so he just decided, and, and he you know returned home to Chicago. Uh, he enrolled in college and graduated in 1963, despite never having finished high school. He took a management trainee position with the Nunbush Shoe Company. He uh, was later transferred in 1964 to work as a salesman and eventually promoted to manager. Not too bad. Uh, in March of that year, he became engaged to Marilyn Myers, and he joined the local JCs. That same year, it is also said that he had his second homosexual encounter with a colleague of his in the JCs while... Uh, I don't know how they, they had some kind of meeting or convention that he was staying with this guy. And, you know, one thing led to another. Gacy married Marilyn Myers in September of 1964. And shortly after, her father purchased three KFCs in the Waterloo, Iowa area. So Gacy and his wife moved there so that he could manage the restaurants for his father-in-law. And in February of 1966, his first child, a son, was born. Yeah, at about age 24, he was married, relocated, as you were saying, to Waterloo, Iowa. Uh, he and his wife had two children. Yeah, his, his second child, a daughter, was born in March of 1967. And there, John uh, had found a spot on the Chamber of Commerce in what, uh, at the time, seemed to be a typical American family scenario. He actually described this part of his life as perfect. This was, this was the best part of his life. He had gained his father's approval. Uh, they visited in July of 66, and his father apologized. For all the physical and oh, emotional wow. abuse that he had inflicted upon him. And he told Gacy to his face, quote, son, I was wrong about you and shook his hand. So the, these were good days for Gacy. Things were finally starting to come together. While it did seem to be a typical American family scenario, sometimes things aren't always as they appear. It was during this time frame that John Gacy seemed to develop a very unhealthy sexual interest into young boys. A uh, son of one of his uh, fellow Chamber of Commerce members would be uh, one of John's first. He lured the young boy back to his home uh, and there allegedly uh, sexually assaulted him. When the boy revealed that John Gacy, uh, what John Gacy had done, the father promptly had Gacy arrested. Uh, but once again, John would use his position of power and hired another teenage boy to intimidate and threaten the younger boy who was victim to his crime. Whatever bullying tactics that seemed to do, it did not stop the boy. He actually went ahead and testified. However, there wasn't clear evidence for the case. Therefore, the court was only able to press charges for sodomy of the 15-year-old boy that occurred. Now, John did decide to plead guilty uh, to one account of sodomy. And in his mind, he was thinking this would be the easiest and quickest route out of the whole ordeal. Uh, but the judge decided to literally throw the book at him. He was sentenced to 10 years in prison. On December 3rd, 1968, uh, he was sent to Alamosa State Pen. And that same day, his wife filed for divorce and won sole custody of both their children. 
Yes. I'm sure she had an easy case. So. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. So while in jail, yeah, John's wife divorced him. Another kind of severe blow to, to Gacy uh, while he was in jail was he heard that his father actually passed away and he was not permitted to attend the funeral services. And that seemed to really devastate him as if the wife divorcing and leaving is not enough. The father who has now apologized, you seem to be in a better spot to Bill's words, you know, kind of the perfect time in his life. Now his dad passes away and he's not even able to attend those funeral services. Now, one thing about John Gacy, he apparently had a very high charisma. Well, that's, that's usually a trait shared by a lot of serial killers. You're looking at uh, people that are sociopaths. It's not necessarily high charisma, but it's the ability to fake. True. You know, they're, they're not to fake that. I, okay, take it how you will. I'm going to say this, and it might be a controversial kind of thing. But really, at this point, these people aren't really human in the way we think of human. They're, they're not empathetic. They don't a lot have of that emotional feel. connection. I don't think they can feel. So, you know, you look at guys like John Wayne Gacy, and then I think, um, oh, what's the, like Ted Bundy. Mm-hmm. You know, these guys prey upon people and they can get people to trust them and do just about whatever they want but they're not really emotionally connecting in any way shape or form so yeah they I mean, like you said it's it's a high charisma but it's it's a fake one it's yeah they're they're it, it's a it's more of a manipulative thing than just having people like you well he was able only within a few months uh, to convince the officers at the alamosa state pen that he was going to be a model citizen and uh, he quickly earned the position of top chef there in the prison, which allowed him a lot of extra freedom and benefits. Uh, he then convinced the parole board uh, he was no threat to society whatsoever, and he was released barely after only serving 18 months of his original 10-year sentence. Now, at this point in time, he decided to leave Iowa, of course divorced, he was alone, and moved back to Chicago where he was more familiar for another fresh start. Now, here's where things were a little weird. Ironically, obviously at this time, you know, we didn't have the internet and, and all this news didn't travel so fast. So his friends and family there in Chicago were, for the most part, totally oblivious that any of this had occurred in Iowa. And so they welcomed back uh, John with open arms. He continued to fly under the radar with no background checks due to the type of jobs that he would uh, apply for. And he even started getting his feet back under uh, him as well by starting his own painting business uh, and later into kind of con- some construction work business. Yeah, he became a self-made building contractor and then once again got involved in politics, becoming a Democratic precinct captain again in the Chicago area, uh, the suburbs in the 1970s. Fell right back into it. Yeah, he was well-liked in the community. He organized gatherings. He was active in politics in the JCs. Uh, he was a member of what they call the Jolly Joker Clown Club. And again, he would perform at clown as a clown at parties and fundraisers, other events, going by either Pogo or Patches the Clown. But of course, you know, there, there, were, there were other things going on. And, and in 1971, he was accused of sexual assault by another teen. Uh, these charges would later be dropped when the boy did not appear for the trial. So, you know, it is, I mean, we know he was doing these things, but... Yeah. August 1971, he becomes engaged to Carol Hoff, and they uh, are married on July 1st, 1972. Um, by 1975, he admits to her that he's bisexual. I mean, he feels that's, that's who he is at that point, and he informs her on Mother's Day 1975 they will no longer have a physical relationship. That seems harsh. Now, um, this is also when he marries the second wife, 
That address is 8213 West Somerdale Avenue, which would go down in history yeah. because this is, of course, the house where everything came unraveled later, many years down the road. So after he quits being involved with his wife, she she notices that he's away a lot, all hours of the day, all hours of the night. And at night, she doesn't know where he's at, what he's doing. He doesn't tell her anything. She also observe, observes him bringing in teenage boys into the garage in early hours of the night. I think at one point it talks about how she found wallets in the house that didn't belong to people who yeah. live there. And, and when she would question them, Gacy would just say, well, you need to mind your own damn business. It all seemed to be younger men. Yeah. yeah. And in uh, October 75, following a very heated argument over the checkbook, finally Carol asked for a divorce and Gacy agrees and they end their marriage on March 2nd. You know, in, in moving into these mid-50s, these are what Gacy referred to as his cruising years. Two more young males in this time frame accuse him of rape. He's questioned by the police um, about the disappearance of others. And uh, really, in, in the 70s here, mid-70s, when most of the murders that he commits are happen. Mm -hmm. So in 1975, teens in the uptown neighborhood of Chicago talk to the police, and they say that a man named John cruises the area picking up young men. And officers observe dozens of young men coming and going from Gacy's house in Norwood at this point. They stop many of them, but no one says anything against Gacy. So, I mean, he was on the the police. He was on the police's radar pretty early, honestly. But he he had that fake facade, Chamber of Commerce, JCs. You know, yeah, I mean, uh, political affiliation, his own business. Yeah, he was I respected. Mean, uh, did the whole clown volunteer thing, volunteer work. So 1976, officers suspect Gacy may be responsible for the disappearance of a nine-year-old boy. Uh, they run surveillance on his house, but they don't find, they don't, they don't have enough evidence at this point to build a case, so there's nothing they can do. March it seemed like they struggled to get warrants to be able to search what they needed to. Yeah. March 1977, 27-year-old Jeff Rignault uh, says that Gacy lured him into his car with promises of marijuana, then used chloroform to knock him out, drive him to his house handcuff him and sexually assault him and then let him go hmm. so kind of doesn't fit what we already know that case is settled with a three thousand dollar civil suit so nothing really you know no criminal charges there december 31st 1977 gacy gets arrested by the chicago police a 19 year old had accused him of kidnapping him at gunpoint and forcing him to engage in sex acts gacy's taken into custody he admits to engaging with the youth and even admits to some pretty heinous acts, from what my understanding is. Um, but he denies that the teen was an unwilling participant. And yeah. apparently the police the agree with that. mutual consent thing. Assistant state's attorney decided not to prosecute Gacy at that time. This was a little detail I found kind of interesting. May 6, 1978. Gacy, while acting as the director of the Polish Constitution Day Parade, received Secret Service clearance. And there are photos that where he was able to meet and take pictures with then First Lady Rosalind Carter. Wow. So, I mean, the guy. All these blips on the radar yeah. and, yeah, we'll give you full access. Pretty pretty established police record at that point in time. Yeah. Well, then we're going to jump into December 1978. And this is definitely where things begin to come unraveled. A 15-year-old working at a pharmacy, his name is Rob Peast. Peast was also a honor student at Maine West High School. So he had a good reputation, smart kid, mm -hmm. respected in the neighborhood. Yeah, he was a stellar kid. They said uh, the type of child any parent would want to have. Uh, he had good grades, well-behaved. It was very odd for him to go missing. But it kind of goes back to that pharmacy where he was uh, working, I, I believe it was as a part-time job, and he was seeking some new employment. It, 
this did not seem to be a typical runaway case. Young Rob Peast was working part-time at the local pharmacy, uh, as I said, trying to kind of earn some extra money. He had told some co-workers and even his mother, who had come to pick him up uh, that particular night, that he was going to go talk to a local painting and contractor in regards to getting a a second job that could possibly lead into a new full-time job. He had met his mom in the front door where she was waiting for him, went back through the store, the pharmacy, went out the back door that same evening, and just seemed to vanish off the face of the earth. Uh, This was the tip the police really was needing. And as Bill had said, he'd been blipping here on the radar, but this was kind of one of those, ooh, we may have got this early enough. Yeah, he he disappears on the 11th. Uh, On the 12th, the police contact John Wayne Gacy because they know he's the last person that Peace talked to. Mm -hmm. Uh, Gacy, you know, they they don't initially make contact with him. I guess they leave a message or something. Gacy calls the police and say, hey, you still want to talk to me? And they say, yeah, come on in. We, you know, we need to talk to you. But then he fails to show up for the interview. Oops. Police later learned what happened after this is that Gacy, you know, after he got off the phone with the police, he went up to the attic where he'd left the body of Peace. And then he drove uh, south of Juliet and dumped Peace's body in the Des Plaines River. Now, one of the things really creepy about this, and this kind of came out later on in follow-up interviews. Again, the mom had come to the front of the pharmacy to pick her son up. He came out. Hey, mom. I'm going to be just a few minutes. I'm going to go talk to this guy about a job. So he walks back through the pharmacy, out the back door, and literally John's car with the boy in it would have to drive past the mom's car waiting out front. I mean, I don't know proximity-wise, but it would have to be very close and basically just escorting her son away to to end up murdering him. Well, That's creepy. Yeah. The next day, Gacy walks into the Des Plaines police station with mud on his pants and shoes and asked to speak to the, the same detective that had contacted him earlier. Uh, he was told to go home and come back later. Don't have time so, for you right now. Uh, when he does come back, he does give him a statement. The officers ask for the keys to his house after they show him a search warrant. And initially he protests, but he does you know, eventually turn over the, the keys to the police. Uh, they, they search his home, and inside the, they find a receipt for film development that belonged to a family friend of peace. Uh, they, his parents said it was, that, that she was somebody that he... You know, he was helping out, but there's no other evidence at that point time saying that Peace was at the home. Just not enough information. Yeah. Two days later on the 15th, his home is placed under around the clock surveillance by the police. And uh, on the 20th, the local police learned of Gacy's previous conviction for sodomy while he lived in Waterloo. So now they know he's got a history. He's starting to connect those dots. And he, he confessed to that December 21st. That's that's the big day that this all comes crashing down for Gacy. Uh, he's arrested after being seen handing a package containing marijuana to a gas station clerk. Yes. Interesting and, and story on that one. Again, it's, it's kind of the same. What was it? Uh, I think it's Ted Bunny. Get, he eventually gets caught for a speeding ticket or something like that. Well, the, the cops at this point in time, as we had mentioned, there's so many blips now on the radio. They're actually starting to follow him. And from everything I read, John is just this jovial kind of prankster. He knew the cops were following him. He'd, he'd buy him coffee. He'd bring it out to him. Hey, guys, how's it going today? Brought you some coffee. I, I got <laughs> cream for you. I, I know you don't like cream. And it would kind of joke with him. Uh, they followed him into a bar. And I think it was like an Odd Fellows or Elite American Legion or something. And, and John waves at him as they're kind of over in a corner table and orders him a round of drinks that the, uh, the, the bartender brings over to him. And it was right after that, I think it was that same night, 
He leaves. The cops, of course, are following. And the cops are like, we had to keep reminding ourselves that this is not a good guy. He is, you know, he's talking with us. He's acting like it's all cool, nonchalant. But he, I guess for whatever reason, he starts to come off the rail this night. And he has some marijuana. So they follow him to this gas station. And they see him exchange, make an exchange. And they thought, well, that's odd. What's, what's going on? So they decide rather than to follow him, they go in and they, they question the, the gas store attendants. And they're just like, he handed me this. I did not order this. I did not, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. They take it, you know, and what they decided it was, was it was almost like he knew they were getting close. So he was trying to ditch the marijuana essentially. And that was enough then to go after him. Well, after arresting him, I guess he lawyers up pretty quick, but at some point admits to his lawyer that he's committed maybe 30 murders. So now he's caught. It's getting real. With him in custody, with the confession, the police are able to obtain another search warrant and they bring him in and he points out places, you know, I guess he takes a, like at one point he even takes a spray paint can and like sprays the concrete floor of the garage to say, okay, there's a body under here. Yeah. He draws a map, I think, during one of the- there's a hand-drawn map out there. That was like right on, I mean, yeah. So they execute the search warrant and they find- uh, what they call several trenches filled with human remains in his crawl space. 26 bodies eventually found total 26 were found in the crawl space, three more in other areas of the home. Eight bodies uh, at that point in time could not be identified. Now, some of the, the uh, survivors, uh, for lack of a better term, will use the young men that worked for his construction company, which was uh, called PDM Contractors, stated that they had been underneath the crawl space that John had asked them to come to the house and help him dig trenches. But he described it as he had a sewer leak and he couldn't get up in there being a a bigger man. Yeah. Um, So he would have the boys go down to dig trenches essentially would becoming graves uh, so that he could access and work on the sewer pipes. And that was kind of a startling revelation that came out afterwards. Oh my gosh. You know, we, we survived, but we actually dug graves for some of yeah. our people that worked for us. Well, when, when visitors would complain about the smell of the house, he would attribute it to mold or rodents and, and told his wife even at one point it was moisture buildup. So he, <laughs> you know, he, he lived with them. I mean, I couldn't imagine. Now, one of the survivors, and I'm going to talk a little bit about him later on, his name is Tony Ananichi. Uh, he was a survivor and escaped John's wrath, uh, but many years afterwards, he was giving an interview about his former boss, and he described him, he was a jovial, happy fellow. He said he was a prankster. Uh, he seemed in many ways to be the perfect boss. He even offered pot or marijuana, would invite them over to the house to party and have fun, you know, after. Apparently, he, he employed teens of both genders, but he would only ever invite them, the males, over to his house. And yeah, like you said, he would ply them with drugs and alcohol. And, and at one point, like, like he would hit on them and he would kind of do it in a joking manner. Yeah. And I think at one point in time, he even said something along the lines of, you know, before you have sex with a woman, you should have sex with a man or something like that. Yeah, and he, was he was instructing just, them, giving some yeah. uh, hints and tidbits. He even recalls, like on several occasions, his boss would say, hey, you know what? It's three o'clock on a Friday. Let's just get out of here. And, you know, not things that your normal boss would say. Let's go have some fun. Uh, Tony says it was nothing out of the ordinary, just kind of things you would not expect a normal boss to do. Uh, He'd allow you to quit early and, you know, hey, you want to go by and we'll pick up some alcohol on the way home or whatever. Just, you know. Well, April 10th, 1979, 
Gacy's house is demolished. Uh, obviously, you know, we talk about Ed Gein's home. You know, the, the sh- they don't want this as a landmark. So they, they knock his house down. I saw pictures of when the coroners and the police were dragging the body bags out and the neighbors literally were just kind of standing there next to the little perfect picket fences, their mouths almost hitting the floor. It's like, what in the world is going on here? So his trial begins February 6th, 1980. And with his confessions already documented, the the arguments in, instead focus on whether or not Gacy's fit to stand trial, you know, as he's saying. He claims that he had an alternate personality who committed the murders, and this was apparently supported by several psychologists who diagnosed him as being schizophrenic. And remember, he was struck in the head with a swing, uh, did have blackouts and some stuff with that. Well, despite this, after very short deliberation, he was found guilty of 33 murders by the jury. Um, At that point in time, that made him one of the most ruthless serial killers in U.S. history. I think think when he was convicted, that was the most murders that any single man had ever committed. He was sentenced to 12 death sentences and 21 natural life sentences. Now I had to look that up. Okay, a life sentence means that you are eligible for parole after 25 years. A sentence of natural life means there is no parole hearing, no credit for time served, and no possibility of release. I had not heard that term before, so that was new Hmm. to me. Uh, Gacy was in prison for almost a decade and a half. He uh, attempted multiple appeals, but often they would have contradictory statements that didn't match his original claims when he was in court. Although he initially confessed, he did later deny that he was guilty. Uh, even had a 900 number set up with a 12-minute recorded statement of about his innocence. Oh, my gosh. On the night of May 9th, 1994, Gacy ate his final meal, was documented as fried chicken, french fries, coke, and strawberry shortcake, and the prison officials described him as being pretty chatty that night. And then he died by lethal injection on May 10th, 1994, with his last words being, kiss my ass. Yeah. That that sort of wraps up Gacy's story at well, that point. I want, I want to touch back on the, the clown persona. I mean, he one of the nicknames he earned was the killer clown. You know, he was well-liked, well-respected in the community, as we had said. He continued for most of this time once he moved back to Chicago that second time to dress as a clown on the weekends, doing birthday parties, church, hospital functions, charity events. He had like this total different persona. When he wore the makeup for the clown, he even had the name tag that read Pogo, and he really just embraced that part. One odd detail about the clown makeup, if you look at him compared to like any other clown image I've ever saw, it's around the the mouth. Most clowns have kind of an outline, if you will. His seriously looks like a Batman symbol drawn well, the, the around o- his face. The other part of it is is in clown circles, based on my understanding, Clowns use rounded edges in their makeup, circles and, and, and rounded edges, whereas Gacy had like triangles and, and, and the mouth was, yeah. was angled. The obviously round shapes, soft shapes versus hard shapes. Yeah, yeah. And afterwards, they had several, you know, people come in and kind of look at some of the photos and, and they're like, you know, they, they felt that, you know, hindsight, but that that was just something clinical and evil with the, the way he did his makeup. Uh, it was at this time... You know, Gacy had actually been overheard multiple times, like when the police were following him on the stakeouts and stuff. Clowns can get away with anything, even murder. Yep. No truer words could have been spoken at the time. Now, I had mentioned um, one of the survivors, and that was the Tony Annalucci. As the news broke across the country, you know, John Wayne Gacy, the serial clown killer, had been arrested. 
Tony was actually watching, and he kind of started seeing this unfold in horror as he himself had unknowingly experienced the accounts firsthand. He was one of the former uh, employees, and while working at PDM Construction, John Gacy's business, he'd accidentally shot himself in the foot with a nail gun, and Gacy actually took him to the hospital where he had to receive a tetanus shot and, and had to get some treatment, and the doctors had given him a couple weeks off to heal. Tony remembers a few days after the accident, his boss, John Wayne Gacy, came to his house. And from what I understood, he was living by himself, you know, at this time, uh, had a house to himself, came to the house one evening at 10 or 1030 at night. That seems a little late for, you know, a visit, but he wanted to check in on the young man, uh, said they were in the home alone. And John bought, uh, brought in yet again, a bottle of wine to share with the young man. Uh, he remembers uh, John talking to him about, um, you know, how Tony, the survivor, was a tough wrestler. He picked up a picture, you know, and he kind of grabbed him by the shoulder and, you know, kind of shook him. And he's like, oh, look at you. You know, you got shot in the foot with a nail. You're a tough wrestler and, and kind of playfully started to wrestle around <laughs> with him. And John got Tony's left arm pulled behind him and he heard a handcuff click on his left arm. Now, Tony went on to say he kept moving his right hand, you know, away preventing him from being able to cuff it as well. But regardless, finally, uh, he was subdued and handcuffed with both hands behind his back and thrown down onto the bed face first. At this point, John just turned and left out of the room. And Tony was not sure what was going on, but he did figure out uh, with his slender hands, he was able to slip out of one of the cuffs. Uh, he then sat up and putting both hands behind, uh, back behind him, not to reveal that he was partially free, as he heard John approach the bedroom door once again. Uh, now, he, John enters the room, and Tony, of course, you know, he's regained control of the situation. He's acting like he's still cuffed behind his back. He took the handcuff off that he had freed himself and handcuffed John with it at this point in time. He then pushed John to the floor, where Tony grabbed the key and freed himself from the other cuff, and sure enough, put the other cuff on John. So now John Wayne Gacy is truly handcuffed, uh, lying there on the floor. Uh, he then pushed, you know, John away and John just kind of laughed and he said something to the effect. He goes, well done. You're the first to escape, much less handcuff me. <laughs> you know, Tony kind of looked back on those words. He didn't really fully understand them at the time, but just how close he had become to another victim. So he sat down and he, he talked to Tony a bit and he agrees to let him go if he promises to leave the house immediately and which he does without you know, any major squaff or, you know, anything. Tony blew it off as some sort of weird test. He said, again, John had a weird sense of humor. Being a prankster, it wasn't uncommon for him to be kind of handsy and wrestle around. And Tony um, actually went on working for John uh, for several months after this all happened and finally quit to take another, another job. He only reported the incident to the police after he saw the television news flashes on Gacy, his former boss. So in October of 2011, the Cook County Sheriff's Department announced that it intended to exhume the remains of eight of Gacy's victims, hoping to identify them via DNA testing, which, of course, wasn't available when Gacy was arrested. Mm -hmm. uh, and they were able to identify three more victims. So that leaves only five of John Wayne Gacy's victims to, unidentified to this day. And some of those, I, I believe I read, were, you know, especially the early victims he tried to pick up were more of like homeless you know, that wouldn't necessarily have family actively looking for them. So 
Now, John Wayne Gacy, while he was in prison, did a lot of art, painted a lot of weird clown pictures and yeah. like pictures of the seven dwarves. He wasn't a great artist either, let me say. Uh, in 2001, I went to, to OzFest, and the lineup of that year's OzFest was Marilyn Manson, Disturbed, Corn, and Ozzy Osbourne. Now, if you know anything about Corn or Jonathan Davis, the lead singer, you'll know that he collects serial killer, or he collected serial killer memorabilia. Mm-hmm. And when he would do these things, I guess he had a traveling, you know, museum, museum of sorts. Yeah. And, and I actually, like he owned some of John Wayne Gacy's paintings. So there was like a self portrait, I think was one of the ones. So I actually have seen some of G- Gacy's work firsthand. Davis sold off his entire collection starting in 2005 because despite himself still having a personal interest in these items, he didn't feel like he needed them around his family and especially his children. Yeah. You know, if you believe in, in the energy and in things like that, these are some pretty dark objects and, and there's definitely some evil associated with them. So I don't I don't blame him for that. But yeah, so I I mean I can say that I've seen some some John Wayne Gacy originals and I, I agree with you. He was not a fantastic not a great, artist. Yeah, not a book no. Yeah. <laughs> but but still, you know, it was it's kind of you look at them and they're kind of cartoony and kind of silly, but then you realize who did it. I think it really kind of outraged the prison as well that he, again, here we have Gacy manipulating things to his will. Yeah. These were items that were readily available, but they didn't like that he was making money off of it and selling these. And that's how he was trying to hire lawyers and different things, which takes us to that date, May 10th, you know, uh, 1994, when he was actually executed. I actually found some of the videos from the news footage and stuff. It was uh, an all out circus outside. Well, well, apparently not not just outside, but just inside. I guess one of the IV lines they hooked up was clogged and yeah. they had to interrupt the whole process to replace some of the tubing. And There were thousands of people lined up outside uh, with signs kill the clown. They were beating drums. Uh, they were yelling, picketing. Some even held signs with the names of his defense lawyers uh, that were defending him saying kill them and burn in hell you know, trying to defend him. Uh, Others wore clown makeup. Just seriously, an all-out sadistic circus of sorts. Uh, And then, of course, as you said, his last words was simply, kiss my ass. That ranks right up there with the uh, the guy they called, I don't remember his first name, but his last name was French. And when I asked him what his last words were, he said, just put in the paper French fries. (laughs) French fries. (laughs) I always love that. Those are those are some pretty good last words. So now back to one of the Rob Peast, one of his victims, when the one that went out the back door of the pharmacy. I guess uh, Gacy again, full confession at this point before he, he, he you know he's arrested and everything. But he uh, mentions and they find several magic books and tricks and stuff in his house. But um, he's very descriptive about like in particular the eager fifteen year old boy just got in the car with me. I offered him. So we'll jump in. We'll do a, a, an application. And the boy jumps in and literally driving out past his mom, waiting to pick him up. He says, yeah, I got Rob home. And, and I was showing him some of my clown magic tricks, including some cards and, and said, I even got him to put a pair of handcuffs on himself. You know, that's how manipulative and sadistic this guy was. You know, Gacy, first off, Gacy, he's explaining how he gets this done. And he says he uh, puts the cuffs on himself. And he's showing Rob, and then he turns his back so he can't see, and he kind of struggles a bit, and then he reveals that he's freed himself from the cuffs. And the young, you know, Rob, very impressed, is, you know, wow, how did you do that? 
And Gacy says, well, here, put these on and I'll show you. And he just takes the cuffs and this young boy just puts the cuffs on himself. And the boy, the boy at this point, you know, has, has left freely with the killer, uh, now accepts the handcuffs to be on, on his own wrist. And Rob struggles and he struggles and he says, okay, what's the trick? He goes, I, I can't escape. I can't. And then Gacy kind of smiles and he reaches inside his pocket and he reveals the key and he says, well, the trick is having this. And he holds the key up kind of above Rob's head, daunting him, uh, you know, trying to get the key. And this was all part of his cynical procedure, that power trip. He wanted to undermine people that, you know, he had so much power over them. As you said, he would offer alcohol, get them drunk sometimes, chloroform, whatever it would take to basically gain control. He did where what was called, he called the rope trick that he described that he did with some of his victims. And he said once the victims were subdued, he would slip a rope over their neck like a noose, but he would put a wooden spoon or a stick in the knot. And he had actually, this would allow him to turn that stick and tighten the rope to strangle them. And he bragged that he had done this so many times, he'd learned the typical result with each half turn what the body would actually do. Uh, He went on to brag that he even uh, stepped up the tricks, killing multiple victims at a time, having them watch as he killed another in front of them. Similar accounts were given and with great accuracy for each and every one of the 33 victims. So the killer clown, as he may forever be known, a very sadistic man, grew up in a very troubled household, tried to reinvent himself, tried to escape kind of one of those people that as many serial killers hiding in plain light, if you will, right out in front of everyone, just never know who your next door neighbor is, you know, and, and these are some dark serial killers and kind of some dark stories. It just, Hollywood does a great job of coming up with movies and scary stuff, but as we've said before, none, I don't think are quite as alarming and, and scary as reality many times, but this concludes yet another installment regarding serial killers. It's just another example of what you'll find on Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Thank you for listening and be safe out there. We'd like to give a shout out to our first uh, paying sponsor, Raven's Loft. That's our family shop here located in uh, London, Missouri. It's your one-stop gaming, vintage toy, and collectible shop where you can find Star Wars, Transformers, G.I. Joe, comics, final records, role-play gaming, Magic the Gathering, and so much more. We're located here at 223 West Commercial, downtown Lebanon, and also in our second location, uh, also here in Lebanon, at the Heartland Antique Mall. We'd like to thank Ravensloft for again supporting Nightmares on the Lost Highway. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, (laughs) using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing. And thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. Um, and I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.